Namotasa Bhagavatu Rahatu Sama Sambuddhasa Namo Tasa Bhagavatu Rahatu Sama Sambuddhasa Namo Tasa Bhagavatu Rahatu Sama Sambuddhasa Buddhang Dhammang Sangang Namasami So, I'd like to um, spend some time <coughs> highlighting some extracts from the Sutta Pitaka to uh, around a particular theme. And this one will be really about the um, the way the Buddha explained the way. So I think last time looking at describing how one kind of gets interested and encouraged and, and you know, the sense of the undertaking of the practice. Um, this, this, this time I thought I'd talk a bit about the way the Buddha talked about the various um, stages of practice or factors of practice, you might say. Uh, and one of the things that he, he uh, did s- say, or the suttas have him saying um, is that there are certain qualities that one should bear in mind whenever one gives a teaching and there are five qualities the first is one should teach the, the way is something that's actually about a path and then one should or secondly one should teach it step by step that is you start with this point you get to this point this takes you to this point takes you to that point and the, this particularly is very uh, apparent when you look in the in the scriptures, and it's easy to get it seems a little bit mechanical even because there are always lists, you know, lists of you do this, you do that, you do this, you do that. So it can seem sometimes a little bit like um, uh, a bit mechanical, but you recognise the Buddha is really giving the underlying structures that you actually you bear in mind and, and you and will tend to become available certain qualities become available as you practice one thing something else becomes becomes available um, and you can practice that so it, it leads onwards anyway to to give you some example one of the, the first um, one of the first teachings he gave was to <coughs> a young man called Yasa and this is an example of uh, what he called the progressive instruction. So Yasa was one of his first disciples, the first one after the group of five. He was the sixth. So he, he took off his gold slippers and went to where the Blessed One was, and after paying homage to him, he sat down at one side. When he had done so, the Blessed One gave him progressive instruction. That is to say, talk on giving, Talk on virtue or sila, talk on the heavens, blissful or um, fortunate states. Explain the dangers, the vanity and the defilement in sense pleasures and the blessings in renunciation. When he saw that Yasa's mind was ready, receptive, free from hindrance, eager and trustful, he expounded to him the teaching peculiar to the Buddha's suffering, its origin, its cessation and the path to its cessation. 
Just as a clean cloth with all marks removed would take dye evenly, so too, while Yasa sat there, the spotless, immaculate vision of the Dhamma arose in him, all that is subject to arising is subject to cessation. So, you know, this language, <coughs> you know, someone, someone says, first seeing the Buddha, he gives him this instruction, it leads to the realization of what's called stream entry, which is this vision, the spotless, immaculate vision of the Dhamma. Um, so there's a progressive instruction. So it starts out with thing that is fairly obvious and easy to to um, to accept and to be and to practice generosity. Most of us would recognise that's a lovely thing to do. You know, we give it to our friends, our parents, we make gifts, and something very happy about that. So it's something you know you easily come into. Uh, and the Buddha is saying this is uh, valuable. You know, it's a way in, and you start to. Uh, what does it do? It lifts the heart. It takes you out of the place of, of ill will or meanness, stinginess. It lifts. It, it goes to the heart. So it's really much entering the heart. You might say it's not a philosophical statement. Generosity. It's not a religious belief. You don't need to be that smart or that mindful to be generous, you know. You start with that. And this is really, you know, very important bit. Like what, what, it, what it's pointing to, where do you begin? You know, where do you start from? Um, on virtue, on sila. So actually, dana, generosity, comes before, before morality. <laughs> but... You know, it, it, these two go together because generosity is this sense of seeing another person, you know, and recognizing a sense of care and goodwill. And then morality is about recognizing the respect for another person. You, you don't want to harm them or abuse them. So this 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 kind of tender heartedness and sensitivity. Um, you know, so this gives us a feeling for really what's the ground in that you know, sense of but it takes one out of one's self really very narrow self view into something that's about other people sharing, enjoying, uh, respecting others. And for that, what does that do to you? You know, it, it sort of you practice it, it lifts, it, it makes you more sensitive, gives you a sense of of conscience of concern and enables you to look perhaps um, at these impulses, these passions where we get greedy or angry or, you know, uh, and say, well, you know, if everybody did this, for example, just these two factors, in, if everybody in the world did this, <laughs> you know, I mean, I don't enlightened, but if everybody just did this, what a wonderful place it would be and it's not that you know that difficult to conceive of is it the five precepts on the heavens that is because of this there's a blissful uplifted state in this very life and according to the Buddha in a future life so people who practice generosity and, and virtue I've got a kind of uh, a light, joyful um, 
you know, gives that quality to it. And this is called the Deva Loka. It's more refined than just the kind of gross, pushy or violent, greedy. Then, so that's the first bit, explain the dangers, vanity and defilement in sense pleasure, the danger of sense pleasure. So once you get this sense of feeling some sense of uplift and, and, and balance in yourself, you can just see how, how it can be very slippery if, if you get sense pleasure can just make us very um, slightly crazy, you know. You lose yourself, you lose that, that openness and that, that uh, quality through, um, you know, the kind of fascination that can arise around the sense basis. So it's dangerous. The word is danger. Mm. Not wrong, but dangerous. So it's not, you know, it's a recognition of how how captured we can be. And by and large, in the world, how captured people get by these, this, um, what can be seen, touched, taste, you know, smell, and so forth. Vanity, it's kind of, it's very, it's very superficial. Doesn't go very deep. It's lightweight. It's very, you know, glittery. You know, very particularly, you know, the stuff that comes out of the commercial world is very superficial. No depth in it compared with something like respect and uh, generosity. It's much deeper qualities. Subject to defilement, it, it 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 defiles, it 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 stains, it it, it kind of corrupts the, the mind. You know, we fight over these things, we cheat over them, we barge, we manipulate, we cut corners for these things. The blessings or the good fortune in renunciation just being able to pull that aside to step out, to let go of that port. How the mind feels a freer, cleaner, lighter, when it's not this drugging influence. So this is what he said was, you know, this, getting, really getting this, made the mind ready, receptive, free from hindrance, eager and trustful. So, you know, because this is something that know, this yasa could could sense, could get into where he, he felt quality of faith in the Buddha. Um, he was ready, you know, wanted more, receptive and eager. You know, this is taking me to some good places, let's get some more. And then the Buddha taught the Four Noble Truths. So these are the Four Noble Truths, which are the central teaching of the Buddha, Still, there's this kind of lead up to it, you know, where the mind is actually ready to take that on. Now, I think this is very helpful to consider that particular thing because sometimes people, oh, Buddhism, you talk about life being miserable and life is suffering, and you know, all you want to do is get extinguished somewhere. Um, when actually, <laughs> that's because they haven't, you know, really studied. So no, the Buddha says generosity is beautiful, respect and virtue is beautiful, you know, care and conscience and concern is beautiful. Because of this, the more you dwell in this, these other things 
become unnecessary and you begin to see the fragility, the, the strain and the stress that goes into holding on and hanging on and you want to let go of that. And this is what the Four Noble Truths show you. Mm. But until the mind is actually poised and ready, then it's one can misinterpret, misunderstand the Four Noble Truths as kind of blanket philosophical statements about life. They're not. They're statements about the stress that we can experience in life and how to rid ourselves of it. <coughs> <coughs> so that's a little systematic piece. You um, <coughs> see how it step by step moves along. And it's showing you, I think, what well, it shows me um, the accessibility. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I may not be, you know, very mindful or very concentrated, but I can experience some generosity and do that. And also where the path begins in this, uh, this uh, quality of, of good heart, we might say. <coughs> and this, so this is a complete newcomer. You know, yes, sir. Now, there's another, there's so many of these um, sequential teachings that, you know, we would be here all night. But there's a particular um, set that's more or less replicated in slightly different ways that I found a, a few references to. <coughs> and the yeah, well, I do. I'll, first of all, the, the one from the second sutra of the long discourse is the Samanya Pala Sutta. Samanya Pala Sutta. Um, and this is where the Buddha is actually talking about the fruits or the benefits, the Pala, of the homeless life. <coughs> and he's talking to the king, Ajata Sattu. So again, it's not so much a direct instruction because Jata so isn't, isn't actually looking for direct instruction so it's it's um, has a slightly different feeling to when the Buddha is actually teaching a committed disciple it's much more he's just presenting it in a kind of uh, you know without really um, you should do this he's just presenting it what are the fruits that's what he's asked so he says well, the fruits so that's the uh, that's the aim of this sutta tell me about the good bits, the benefits you get from this. <coughs> but this sequence um, occurs in many, t many ways, so it's a good one to, to bear in mind, basically. So it starts off, the Dhamma is heard by a householder, and um, having heard, he gained faith in the Tathagata. Having, so it starts off with faith. It says, the household life is close and dusty, the homeless life is free as air. So why don't I go forth? Having gone forth, it dwells restrained in the restraint of the rules, persisting in right behavior, seeing danger in the slightest faults. And how is he perfected in morality? Take, avoids the taking of life. 
dwells refraining from taking life without stick or sword, scrupulous, compassionate, trembling for the welfare of all living beings. Thus is accomplished immorality. By abandoning the taking of what is not given, uh, abandoning unchastity, so he goes through the, the various basis of uh, morality. And for a, for a, a, a summoner, there's a, quite, there's a very long list of things he doesn't do, such as obviously gambling and trading and doing deals and things of this nature. Um, so but the first step is really uh, morality, faith in morality, the sense in which one's interested in following norms and it comes from the same place as its earlier a sense of conscience and concern um, how one's going to affect others um, what how it, your life is going to affect your own mind so a sense of like you don't want to put yourself into things that are going to exacerbate um, these passions these aversions these tangles or make the mind confused so you want to live clearly and also, how you live with others is going to affect them. So you have that natural sense of compassion and concern for others. And of course, how you live with them is going to be how the kind of feedback you get from them. So it's very holistic. And this place, we haven't really done anything, anything about meditation. You know, This is just reflection and, and tuning in. Um, you see, so, so in neither of these have we actually touched upon any kind of system of meditation practice or, you know. Hmm. So I think it's really, that's really helpful to just recognize, you know, just these, look at your life very, very fully, holistically. Hmm. And then, Someone who's perfected morality sees no danger from any side. <clears throat> he experiences in himself the blameless bliss that comes from maintaining his Aryan morality, or sometimes called the bliss of blamelessness. That is, one feels so. There's the absence of regret, but actually, there's a presence of something else. You know, so he's encouraging an introspection into that which has conscience and concern, compassion, that which is sensitive, that which is modest, that which is gentle, that which is scrupulous, you know, really feeling that out in oneself. And so, so it's important that all these things which are about, you know, the not doing or the restraining have a very positive effect. And this is the theme of this particular sutta. It's not just, you know, you shouldn't do this, otherwise you get punished. But if you don't do this, you need experience this very positive quality which arises because the heart is freed from something that hinders it. So there's always a basic understanding in the Buddha that the original state of mind, you might say, is, is pure and joyful. And the problem, we don't have to add anything to it so much as take things away from it, take away these cramps and um, obstacles. Similarly, one is a guardian of the sense doors, sense restraint, does not 
on hearing a sound with the ear, smelling an odour with the nose, tasting a flavour, feeling an object with the body, on thinking a thought with the mind, he does not grasp at its major signs or secondary characteristics. Does not grasp its major signs or secondary characteristics. So, you know, the what this really refers to is that actually it's not so much the sense objects themselves, but what the mind makes of them. So, you know, you you, you can see something, like, you know, say obviously put uh, somebody else, you can have a kind of passion or sexual attraction, or you could see that same thing and not have that experience. What it, what it means to you, the sign that's made, and the mind actually imprints these signs of lust, or aversion, or agitation on objects themselves have got no. <laughs> they've got no inherent quality. They're just that. Blue is just blue. Green is just green. It's not there to do anything to you. But the mind picks up and ma- makes a sign out of it. You know, something's triggered by that. Or secondary characteristics. What it reminds me of, you might say what it suggests I could be. So, blameless bliss again from maintaining this guarding of the faculties. Then we start to get into meditation. So it's after this, or you might say, talks about features that we normally associate with meditation, mindfulness and full awareness. Again, here a monk acts with clear awareness in going forth and back, looking ahead or behind, bending and stretching, Wearing the robes, eating, drinking, chewing, urinating, walking, standing, lying down, speaking, keeping silent, he acts with clear awareness. Yeah. So this is not really about a technique, is it? It's about, you know. <laughs> yeah. And then he says, uh, he's contented. Satisfied with a robe to protect the body, with arms to satisfy the stomach, and having accepted sufficient, goes on his own way. Just as a bird with wings flies hither and thither, burdened by nothing but its wings, so he is satisfied, experiences contentment. Then, so with this lot happening as a basic um, way of being, then he finds a solitary lodging, root of a tree, mountain cave, gorge, heap of straw, sits down cross-legged, holding his body erect and concentrates on keeping mindfulness established before before him. Or also translated as con, um, keeps mind, sets up mindfulness to the fore. In other words, makes that the priority. Obviously, mindfulness isn't sitting in front of him. Abandoning worldly desires, he dwells with the mind free from worldly desires. His mind is purified of them. So this, this pertains to the, the first hindrance, which are two, explained in two ways. One is um, karma chanda, or that thirst or eagerness, mo- being motivated by senses. Chanda is motivation, so karma chanda, you're motivated by a sense pleasure. Or the other phrase that's used is covetousness that is you hanker after things 
So abandoning ill will and this is the first hindrance, abandoning ill will and hatred and by compassionate love for the welfare of all living beings, his mind is purified of ill will and hatred. So basically it's uh, we all know the Brahma Vihara, so practicing that. Abandoning sloth and torpor, mind perceiving light. This is the sense of really focusing on on um, on uh, light. So this is generally considered the light in the mind, or it doesn't mean animity, it means a general sense of of um, radiance. Let's have a look. So it means you, you, <coughs> you know you can perceive light, that is, you can imagine it, keep your eyes open, dull and sleepy. One of the basic instructions: um, sit in open air, sit where there's light coming in, so it keeps you keeps you awake, and you get a sense of an inner inner lightness begins to be experienced. Abandoning worry and flurry, or restlessness and agitation. With an inwardly calmed mind, his pu- my heart is purified of worry and flurry. Abandoning doubt, he dwells with doubt, dwells with doubt left behind. Without uncertainty as to what things are wholesome, unwholesome, his mind is purified of doubt. So doubt is here related to um, wholesome, unwholesome, skillful, unskillful, knowing in yourself what brings up the good, what brings up the bad. So you have no doubt about that. I mean, you have doubt about all kinds of other things. You know, what you can do tomorrow, this kind of, but these, this sense of doubt concerning, um, again, basically morality, you know, on a refined level. Not external, but internal. You know, what are the kind of things that, you know, bring up, um, agitation or harshness or depression in my mind this is unwholesome don't go there mm. so this is quite again this is a, uh, this is not so much about a particular technique of meditation but the things to look out for in establishing mindfulness so just sitting establishing mindfulness bearing the body in mind or using that as a frame of reference and then witnessing what comes up putting aside the uh, acknowledging this uh, sense desire covetousness you know, ill will and it's, it's again sequential until we really know not just as an idea not from a belief not from some um, moralizing attitude we really see in ourselves what is wholesome, what's unwholesome. You know. And again, whatever topics come into the mind, you know, for one person they could be accompanied by wholesome states, another person they could be accompanied by unwholesome states. You know, we might find something that kids us feel calm, another person might feel it frightening or boring. Um, you know. So so you know, you have to really know for yourself. So this takes us into uh, uh, this area of clearing the five hindrances through mindfulness. 
And then he talks a lot about the benefits of this, partly because this is really a big, quite a big struggle. And he says, just as a man who taken a loan to develop his business, whose business had prospered, might pay off his old debts with what was left over could support a wife, might think, before I developed my business by borrowing, but now it has prospered. So he has to actually, you know, borrow some. So he's putting out some effort, but it bears fruit. Person who was ill, suffering, terribly sick, with no appetite and weakened body, might after a time recover and regain appetite, would think, before this I was ill. And he would rejoice and be glad about that. Just as a man might be bound in prison, be free from his bonds, and he might think, before this I was in prison, he would rejoice and be glad about that. As someone might be a slave, dependent on another, unable to go reliant, be free from slavery, might think, before this I was a slave and would rejoice and be glad about that. In another image, um, one's travelling through a desert where food is scarce and danger abounded and get through the desert, arrive safe and sound at the end of a village, might think, before this I was in danger, now I am safe at the edge of a village and would rejoice and be glad about that. And when one knows these five hindrances are left you, gladness arises. From gladness comes delight. From delight in his mind, his body is tranquilized. With a tranquil body, he feels joy. With joy, his mind is concentrated. Being thus detached from sense desires, detached from unwholesome states, enters and remains in the first jhana which is accompanied by thinking and pondering, born of detachment, filled with delight and joy. And with this delight and joy, he so suffuses, drenches, fills and irradiates his body, there's no spot in his entire body is untouched by this delight and joy, born of detachment. So, so the abandoning of the hindrance is gladness, Pamoja, from gladness comes delight. Um, there's pity, I would imagine. From delight in his mind, his body is tranquilized. So, which is very interesting, isn't it? Sense in which, you know, d- dwelling in that that uh, quality of mind has a bodily effect. And this is really this is what. Um, Meditation, this is what meditation, you know, sati and samadhi are about. Taking something that, uh, and it's, it becomes actually a fully a body experience. Um, so you get the kind of whole uh, completion and the strength and the, uh, the felt, real felt experience uh, of the body being happy, satisfied, relaxed, just like if you had a massage or a bath, something like that. Mm. And so and so this is what, um, according to this, gives rise to this experience of the first jhana, which is, again, bodily, suffused, drenched, filled and radiated the body, so there's no spot that is untouched by this delight and joy. So this is Primarily, we might say, the meditation process. 
that before he was mindful and aware, walking up and down, eating, drinking, so forth. Now he sits still, and then it goes into this much more interior realm, but it's uh, it's still embodied. It's you like the body from the inside. So then there are many very very beautiful um, similes talking about the various jhanas. <coughs> and then, um, which too long to go on to, really. But all, all very nice. <laughs> and then the results of that are, so having been completely, you know, um, just purified and, and pleased and, and so forth in that respect, then directs the mind towards knowing and seeing. He knows this my body is material made up of four great elements and this is my consciousness which is bound to it and dependent on it. This is the fruit of the homeless life more excellent and perfect than the former ones. So this uh, gets a sense of really seeing you know, the body or it's knowing the body is just what it is. It's not um, it's material made up for it. It's not a person. And the consciousness is something that arises dependent on that. So similarly, the con- neither body nor mind c- nor consciousness can really be seen as self or personhood. They're two dependently arisen features. It goes through the various kinds of supernormal powers and... Um, <clears throat> leads his mind to the knowledge of the destruction of the asava. Then he knows this, it really is, this is suffering, this is the origin, this is the cessation, this is the path. So we come again to the, the Four Noble Truths. Um, but that, you know, is seen really as a process one has worked towards. So, you know, even the word suffering seems grossly um, out of place here, you know, because uh, you know, he's already experienced all this bliss and joy. You know, but it means sensing the kind of tension or stress that comes through these, um, these, these sense of these asava, which is primarily forms of attachment. You know, and so this is not what an ordinary person would experience as suffering at all. Um, but te- when you get to the mind that kind of clear, you begin to see this kind of this qua- this um, these features that most people are operating through as stressful, and and that can be abandoned. So the various steps in that, which um, it's kind of outlined, and it's worth looking at that. Um, but just to See how that's replicated, that same pattern, perhaps with slightly more detail here and there. But you have basically faith and then morality, um, sense restraint. Uh, Here they've got another one, contentment. So it's a sense of dwelling in the results. I think that's what you get from that particular sutta, particularly because it is about the parlor, the fruits. Having the time to really dwell in the fruits, the results of one, 
factor and that leads you on to the next. Mm. So you know, contentment and then mindfulness and full awareness, then this process of meditation, working with the five hindrances until the whole of the nervous system is cleaned out of these snagging, dullness, agitation, restlessness, you know, uh, and then from that you've got a basis to really witness fully and clearly the whole physical, psychological system, you know, for what it really is. So it's a couple of other ones, but <coughs> the 53rd Sutta of the Middle Length Sayings, the Sika Sutta. This is actually Ananda talking, Venerable Ananda. Buddha's having a rest, he's got backache, which seemed to be a problem for him. So he says, oh, my back's hurting, I've got to go and take a rest. You, Ananda, talk to the assembly. <coughs> Again, similar, similar, pro, similar system. Ananda's talking to the um, householders of, of, of Kapilavastu. Mahanama, a noble disciple, is, noble disciple is possessed of virtue, guards the doors of the senses, is moderate in eating, devoted to wakefulness possesses seven good qualities and is one who attains at will without trouble or difficulty the four jhanas that constitute the higher mind and provide a present abiding in the here and now. So virtue, sense faculties, very very much the same. Then he adds a bit more to sense restraint, moderate in eating, devoted to wakefulness, during the day while walking back and forth and sitting purifies the mind of obstructive states in the first watch of the night purifies the while walking back and forth and sitting purifies the mind of obstructive states in the middle watch of the night lies down on the right side in the lion's pose with one foot overlapping the other mindful and fully aware after noting his mind the time for rising after rising in the third watch of the night walking backwards and forth and sitting purifies his mind of obstructive states. So a strong vote there for walking meditation to keep you awake. <laughs> the three watches of the night, you can imagine in the tropics you have near the equator you have approximately 12 hours daylight 12 hour night approximately so divide the six six hours into two and say roughly uh, six hours uh, sorry 12 hours of the night into four you have six until ten it would be your first watch when you're walking backwards and forwards and sitting and ten until two second watch being lying down third watch two until six you're up again walking up and down and sitting yeah. And that's not so far from what we do here, actually. Considering we do a lot more, um, you know, out outgoing work, I think we do a reasonable job here at emulating that that uh, that practice. 
So, but essentially, uh, I think it's very important to have that sense of be ending the day, you know, with, with the meditation, so that your body is composed and you've cleared the results of the day, the first watch of the night, and you lie down. And when you lie down, it's not just the kind of crash out, huddle in a heap under the duvet experience, but some sense of, well, you know, just be mindful, composed, clear, with a feeling of, you know, when I've had enough rest, rest the body, then get up and start the day with, with meditation practice. You know, so that's just a really nice thing that we try to follow. The seven good qualities. Uh, so here he kind of um, digresses a little from this, uh, this other system. So there are di- different uh, permutations on this. But the, the seven qualities are pretty much uh, encompassed in the other qualities. First is he has faith in the, t- in the Tathagata's enlightenment. And you do get a sense that the, the, you know, there is such a thing as enlightenment and the Buddha experienced that. One is what's called shame or hiri, uh, conscience. Uh, so conscience about um, <coughs> the results of one's actions upon oneself. And then has what's called fear here or concern. That is it. Consci- conscientious is about the results of actions towards other people. So these two qualities of sensitivity. Learn much, remembers what is learned and consolidates what is learned. Actually, this is one of the ways that is some that mindfulness is is um, often uh, glossed in as the ability to remember what has been learned. So it is it's bit to bear something in mind. Energetic in amb- uh, abandoning unwholesome states. This mindfulness possesses the highest mindfulness and skill, recalls and recollects what was done long ago and spoken long ago. So it's a mind that can actually stop, still, go out of the drive forward and bear something in mind, turn it over, consider it, think it. Remember that even this first jhana is accompanied by thinking, not without thinking. Skillful, applied thought. Um, And then he goes on to the the, um, description of the four jhanas again. Because of this, one possesses wisdom regarding um, rising and ceasing. So again, that's the that's the stream entry, that which arises as the nature to cease. So, leads to the complete destruction of dukkha. These are the seven good qualities. And another very nice image at the end of that, which I think I'll, I'll refer to or allude to again. Mm. It says, its eggs are unspoiled. Suppose there were a hen with eight or ten or twelve eggs, which she had covered, incubated and nurtured properly, even though she did not wish 
Oh, that my chicks might pierce their shells with the points of their claws and beaks and hatch out safely. Yet the chicks are capable of piercing their shells with the points of their claws and beaks and hatching out safely. So too, when a noble disciple has become one who has possessed the virtue, he's called one in higher training, has entered upon the way, his eggs are unspoiled. Hmm. So in other words, you don't have to wish for it. If you do it, it happens by itself. And that's a theme I'll come to, actually. But this, this theme of this suit is also echoed in another one, the 125th, the grade of the Majima, the grade of the tamed. Very similar list. As faith goes forth, as encouraged to develop um, virtue, um, sense restraint, moderation in eating, devotion to wakefulness, mindfulness and full awareness, and uh, abandoning the five hindrances. <clears throat> Having thus abandoned these five hindrances, he abides contemplating the body as a body ardent, fully aware and mindful, having put away covetousness and grief for the world. And he says, the, the targeted disciplines him further. Abide contemplating the body as a body, but do not think thoughts connected with the body. Abide contemplating feelings as feelings, but do not think thoughts connected with feelings. Abide contemplating mind as mind, but do not think thoughts connected with the mind. Abide contemplating mind objects as mind objects, but do not think thoughts connected with mind objects. With the stilling of applied and sustained thought, he enters upon and abides in the second jhana. So it's seen the process then of, of, of the um, quelling the five hindrances is really synonymous with the entering the first jhana. You know, and it's with thinking and pondering, recollections, considerations, a uh, variety of ways. It doesn't, you know, it doesn't say anything here about any particular technique, but just working on these bases. That is the entry to and the fruition of the first jhana is this abandoning of the five hindrances. This is a really good way to, to look at this, these, this jhana experience, really. Um, you know, rather than, you know, get hung up on some particular system or another, whatever works <laughs> to clear the mind of these five hindrances. You know, through mindfulness and awareness, being clearly conscious, reflecting, bearing things in mind, considering, looking, pointing your attention towards something, evaluating what's going on, you know, sieving off, creaming off the unwholesome, knowing what's wholesome, abiding in it, 
practice, we would say, the first jhana. And then, again, this, this real encouragement to dwell in the results of that. And the results may be just like the first scratching of the chick on the, on the inside of the egg. It doesn't burst out in one go, but you may feel something of sense of relief or confidence or assurance or ease or you know tonal quality shift. And you pick up that sign and you encourage it and you go for it. The last one I'll read, which is particular. That in this list, kind of similar. This is from the Numerical Discourses, tenth book of the tens. Um, <coughs> for one who is virtuous and endowed with virtue, there is no need for an act of will. May non-remorse arise in me. It is a natural law that non-remorse will arise in one who is virtuous. One free of remorse who has no need for an act of will may gladness arise in me. It is a natural law that gladness will arise in one who is free from remorse. For one who is glad at heart, there is no need for an act of will may joy arise in me. It is a natural law that joy will arise in one who is glad at heart. For one is joyful, there is no need for an act of will. May my body be serene. It is a natural law that the body will be serene for one who feels joyful. For one of serene body, there is no need for an act of will. May I feel happiness. It is a natural law. The one who is serene will feel happiness. For one who is happy, there is no need for an act of will. May my mind be concentrated. It is a natural law for one who is happy that the mind will be concentrated. One who is concentrated, there is no need for an act of will. May I know and see things as they really are. It's a natural law for one with a concentrated mind to know and see things as they really are. For one who knows and sees things as they really are, there is no need for an act of will. May I experience revulsion and dispassion. It's a natural law to experience revulsion and dispassion. One experiences revulsion and dispassion. There is no need for an act of will. May I realize the knowledge and vision of liberation? Thus, monks, the preceding qualities flow into the succeeding qualities. The succeeding qualities bring the preceding qualities to perfection for going from the near shore to the far shore. So, again, it's very. You know, model the Buddha always used of definitely. There being a progress, it's not, you know, we're already here. But some sense of definitely some kind of movement. But the beauty in this is that, you know, if you just pay the first step in mind, you get the lift, the fuel, the movement that actually brings you to the second piece of it. You know, so it's, so here the emphasis is there is no need for an act of will, just like the the hen doesn't have to will that the chicks break out of their eggs. If she sits there on her, chick, on her eggs, those chicks are going to get out. There's a natural law. The word here is dhammata. Dhammata. So it's a law of dhamma, you might say, or, or 
innate or dhammaness. This is nice. So the sense of the natural law, the dhamma being a natural law, the more we really trust and, and go with the dhamma, and it has this quality of it moves us along. Here we have um, virtue, gladness, joy. Body be serene or relaxed, or this description that was there of the jhana. Happy. Happiness, as the mind feels light, free. Because of this, there is mind is concentrated, it settles, it rests. See things as they really are. And then revulsion and dispassion or nibbinda, which means um, not going into, or the opposite of going into, as a shrinking away. This can seem to be a very negative expression. Um, it's generally when we apply that but here it means a kind of recoiling like ooh don't like the look of that from (coughs) attachments from bondage from uh, craving from ill will there's a kind of you know um, movement away from that and so that realizing knowledge and vision of liberation you begin to sense there's something there that does not want to go into, hang on, um, you know, it wants to let, you know, realize that there is this quality that uh, we can attend to that, that by itself inclines towards freedom, liberation. So we're in a way practicing to uncover, successively allow that to come through and quite a uh, nice image sometimes used I think in Zen tradition is of that same image of the sitting on the the chicken the hen sitting on the egg you know in that if the hen didn't sit on the egg then the chick wouldn't hatch if there's no chick inside the egg it wouldn't hatch either yeah. So, what that means is we apply ourselves to the practice, but it's because there's a chick there that there's a breaking through. It's not that the hen could sit there and scratch and sweat and strain and whatever all day and all night if there wasn't some innate potential for enlightenment. Nothing's going to happen. You know, there's no chick in the egg, it's the egg sterile. Because there is a chick, or potentially a chick, then um, there is this possibility. So it's both, if you like, with application, with effort, and also something that seems almost granted without effort. And it's the, you know, something that happens, or a potential that's realized rather than created. So. I think with these, looking carefully into these, um, this, this kind of pedagogical device, this teaching structure, um, then you, you, you see it's not just a do this, do that, do this, do that. It's a do this, allow that to happen. Dwell in that. 
this will take you to the next step. It's much subtler than than a you know than a technique. It's a whole map of cause and effect in terms of the practice path. 